0: Welcome to Charles Stanley Radio, podcasts providing economic updates combined with some light-hearted conversation during this time of uncertainty. We talk to people from across Charles Stanley to get their insights and recommendations for life in lockdown.
1: Good afternoon, guests and speakers. Welcome to our Charles Stanley webinar, Back to Business, Adaptability and Resilience Post-Covid. Thank you so much for joining us on this beautiful sunny afternoon. Our two speakers will each speak for 15 to 20 minutes, and we will then have some time in the final 15 minutes for your questions. I am now delighted to introduce our two speakers. Both are partners at the law firm Mishkon Derea. Our first speaker is Victoria Piggott. Victoria specialises in corporate litigation, director and shareholder disputes, She acts for a wide variety of clients, including high-profile and high-net-worth individuals, corporations, families, and family offices. Our second speaker is David Cummings. David advises on all aspects of employment law, both from the employer as well as the employee perspective, including senior executives and high-net-worth individuals. He works across multiple sectors, but particularly in the arena of financial services. Let's now hand over to the experts. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm going to talk about three main aspects. The first being a very brief summary of director's duties, which I'm sure you probably all know. Then move on to talk about the impact of COVID and changing considerations for directors. And finish with a look forward, um, how duties might change and the trend towards ESG. So a summary of duties for a director. As you'll all know, a director of a company is one of the decision makers with personal fiduciary responsibilities for the company. There's a statutory code of duties set out in the Companies Act 2006 with seven key principles. Duty to act within your powers, promote the success of the company, exercise independent judgment, exercise reasonable care, skill, and diligence, avoid conflict of interest, do not accept benefits from third parties, and to declare an interest in a proposed transaction. So I think the greatest impact of COVID, um, firstly, has been on the duty to promote the success of the company, and secondly, to exercise reasonable care, skill, and diligence. So if we take these in turn, Promoting the success of the company sounds relatively straightforward. You must act in a way that you consider to be in good faith, so honesty, integrity, and fairness, and your actions must be most likely to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members as a whole. Until now, um, success was really just a measure of profit, so director salaries were linked to shareholder dividends. The second duty, a director must exercise reasonable care, skill and diligence. Now, again, this seems relatively straightforward and it's subjective. So if you're an accountant and you're expected to behave in a way that could be reasonably expected of an accountant sitting on the board, and your decisions will be judged by the general knowledge and skill that other accountants might have applied to the issues being raised. So far, so simple. Ensure the company makes a profit and behave in a way that is reasonable to your skill set. But the question here is: what happens when the global pandemic hits and no one has experienced anything like it before? Very few of us has heard had heard of the phrase lockdown or self-isolate or furlough before March this year, and even those of us who've experienced previous recessions will remember that there is a slight warning. Um, You can often see them coming. You can usually see as well when there are seeds of recovery. This seems less obvious with a global pandemic and the economy essentially just grinding to a halt to protect the health of the people. So COVID has obviously brought new challenges for directors. Who've had to make decisions quickly and often based on incomplete and changing information with limited advice. So, as I said previously, the focus was on shareholder dividends with the director pay linked to profit. But promoting the success of a company in the medium to long term is no longer as simple as maximising share value. As the pandemic took hold, for example, uh, clearly the health of staff came first closing workplaces, shutting factories, setting up proper working from home environment. This was all new to almost every director. Furloughing staff, which David will talk about later. So using that process to avoid redundancies and often having to top up staff salaries who might be paid more than the government cap. It's almost as if the focus was taken firmly away from profit so that directors had to look at the welfare of their employees. And companies have taken this further in assisting in the COVID effort. And there are two distinct ways that I've noticed. The first is in relation to donations or giveaways. So for example, Uber drivers taking key workers home, prep the coffee chain, giving out free coffee to key workers and discounted food. Leon, the food company giving out discounted food, supermarkets having special opening hours for key workers, the Excel Centre being provided uh, rent-free to the NHS by the Abu Dhabi Investment Fund, and in fact paying the fixed costs for the Nightingale Hospital. So obviously some companies are in the position where they can give those kind of donations and giveaways other companies we've seen have repurposed their business so you have fashion houses making ppe gin manufacturers making hand sanitizer formula one engineers working with medics to uh, design new ventilators and football clubs offering their stadiums as drive-through testing centers again this is not specifically profit related many of the repurposing businesses will have had to spend money in order to repurpose their business and help the covid effort and there are clear reputational issues in relation to that so making the wrong decisions often been really highly publicized and i single out Tottenham the football club for no reason i have no affiliation or otherwise they furloughed their non-playing staff as they were entitled to do while their players, who are obviously far better paid than their non-playing staff, uh, were not furloughed and remained on 100% of their salaries. Just as an example, Harry Kane earned $10.4 million last year. So whilst the non-playing staff were often reduced to 80%, which the government would pay, the footballers themselves remained on their salaries. This did not go unnoticed by the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust, who voiced their discontent at this and contacted the board about it. If you bear in mind that, on average, a premiership football club's uh, revenue, only 9% comes from ticket sales, Um, this was not a financial decision. But the board listened to the trust, realised the importance of their stakeholders, and reversed the decision to furlough their non-playing staff. So all of the focus there was taken away from profit. It forced directors to think on their feet, work on the basis of limited information in short time frame. increased Boards tend to have increased the amount that they're meeting virtually and trying to support the executive through this enormous challenge. There are many CEOs who've only known rapidly growing businesses and suddenly they found themselves confronted with the possibility of mass redundancies. One question that's important for directors now as as we're in the crisis and looking to come out of it, is whether or not the executive team that was leading them into the crisis is the right team that should lead them out and into the future. Similarly, it may be that the composition of boards will change for the next phase. Perhaps a premium will be placed on financial literacy or different approaches to risk management there may be a greater focus on planning for consequences as opposed to planning for specific events. And that leads into new shareholder priorities and ESG. It's clear that the pandemic has made us all think differently about how we live our lives and what's actually important to us. One example is the government trying to make us look beyond our own personal bubbles, stay at home, not necessarily for your own benefit, but to protect the NHS, to look after the vulnerable. And shareholders and the stakeholders have begun to ask, what are we doing to help the effort? And this leads on to ESG, environmental social governance, the current buzzword or acronym. And although it is a current buzzword, the ideas behind it are certainly not new. The fact is, People make choices based on their beliefs, and they've always done so. In the 1960s, investors often excluded stocks from their portfolios based on apartheid or tobacco. Um, So it's not new. It was just previously referred to under the umbrella term corporate social responsibility. But ESG is actually different to corporate social responsibility. Um, The former UN secretary, Kofi Annan, wrote to 50 CEOs of major financial institutions in 2005. He wanted to integrate ESG into capital markets. It was his belief, and it still stands today, that ESG factors have financial relevance. They make good business sense. They're more sustainable and they're better for society. So what might an ESG issue be? In terms of environmental, you've got climate change, carbon emissions, biodiversity, energy efficiency, water scarcity, social, things like customer satisfaction, data protection and privacy, gender and diversity, human rights. And in governance, you have board composition, audit committee structure, lobbying, executive compensation, The importance of these kinds of considerations are greater than ever, and in the spotlight during the current crisis, ESG criteria are often seen as the set of standards for a company's operations that socially conscious investors use to screen investments. So younger investors, stakeholders in particular, have shown an interest in putting their money where their values are both in relation to investments they might make, but also where they might take their employment opportunities. A global study of over 1,000 millennials um, conducted by the Devere Group found that 77% consider ESG concerns as more important when considering returns. Similarly, a recent survey of 1,000 employees in the U.S. found that 40% of millennials had chosen employment in the past because the company they chose performed better on sustainability. So if a business is looking to its mid to long term future and who its employees might be, it needs to consider these to attract the right kind of future employee. Even before COVID, there was a push towards uh, companies adopting what's called a B Corp framework. This is essentially where a company signs up to be a B Corp. In order to do so, you have to change your articles of association. So you change section 172 of your articles, which is the duty to promote the success of the company, which is no longer entirely focused on profit. And a B Corp company is assessed every three years uh, on criteria, such as governance, workers, communication. Essentially, it's a benchmarking tool against peers so companies are keen to obtain and publicize their b corp status so really to draw those strands together the core director duties have not been changed by the covid crisis but the significance of context when viewing those duties has never been more important the world is rapidly changing and a decision made two weeks ago may well not be the same decision taken today so given this it's essential that directors need to think carefully about the mid to long-term impact of the decisions they're making today and it's clear that the focus on profit is unlikely to be the sole consideration directors need to have an eye on the wider stakeholder requirements how they're affected by decisions including employees consumers and future investors all of whom are likely to consider the company's role during this period the companies who've adapted and put social responsibility before short-term profit may well see the benefits of this in the mid to long-term consideration of the success of their company repurposing business in a time of crisis gives real fiber to the sometimes academic sounding discussions around the importance of corporate purpose Last year, the British Academy re-articulated the role of business in society as being to profitably solve problems of people and planet and not profit from causing problems. As directors navigate their their charges through the crisis, some may say they have a duty to bear this wider purpose in mind. And on that note, I will pass over to my partner, David Cummings.
3: Thank you, Victoria. Hello, everyone. I am going to talk in a little bit more granular fashion from a labour perspective in what getting back to business adaptation and resilience post COVID may look like. And at the outset, I think I would like to say that truly understanding what back to business means from a general employment perspective and how the employment relationship will continue to evolve as we grapple with the pandemic I think will take some time i think there's going to be a lot of trial and error uh, and in my view some litigation really testing the edges and the foundations of employment law and the employment relationship as we move through the next phase of the pandemic as we work to unlock lockdown businesses try to get back up and running all in the context of what i think will be an inevitable rationalization in the labor market that will come with the tapering and eventual ending of the government support schemes. Um, But from a labor perspective, I think your lockdown exit strategy really focuses on the changing nature of the furlough scheme, which I'll touch on, and its ultimate end in October, complying with health and safety obligations, which are now more than ever a top priority for employers for the foreseeable future, and understanding and deploying measures available to employers in dealing with the end of the government support and intervention In a lawful and risk managed way bearing in mind also the wider context of purpose that victoria talked about from a board perspective and how you manage your employees and the business moving forward so just to touch briefly on furlough a new word in everyone's vocabulary now since march with the introduction of the coronavirus job retention scheme cjrs for short which i'm sure you will have heard of. In a nutshell, from March, employers could effectively claim 80% of furloughed employee salary up to monthly salary, up to a cap of two and a half thousand pounds, plus employers' national insurance contributions and minimum auto enrolment pension contributions as well. Now, this was originally supposed to last for three months through March, April and May. It was then extended um, further to the end of July, And now, ultimately, extended through to the end of October. As you probably also know, the scheme applies to all those workers on the PAYE system, including those on zero hour contracts, casual employees, office holders such as salaried company directors and salaried LLP members, and apprentices. Now, the original CJRS was quite restrictive. You needed to uh, be furloughed for at least three weeks in one hit to be eligible furloughed employees could not carry out any work for their employer during that period of furlough uh, unless it was volunteer work or training and they must have been employed individuals must have been employed prior to the 19th of march 2020 in order to be eligible now as you probably have heard from some of the recent announcements from the government from 1 july we are now moving to the concept of flexible furlough which means that employees from 1 July who have previously been furloughed can now be brought back to work for any amount of time and for any work pattern. So no longer do you have to be furloughed for at least three weeks, it can be applied flexibly. And employers can claim the furlough grant for the hours that the flexibly furloughed employees do not work compared to the hours that they previously did work normally. Now during those non-working hours for which the grant is claimed, employees mustn't do any work again, but can do training and volunteer work. Employees can stay on full-time furlough, they don't have to come back on a flexible basis if that's the business prerogative at the time, and the flexible furlough arrangements must be agreed again in writing between the employer and, and the employee, and a record kept of the hours worked and the hours spent on furlough during the scheme. Flexible furlough can last any amount of time. There is no minimum. However, the period that can be claimed for must be at least seven days worth of flexible furlough working. In terms of the cost, this has been another big change from the government as we unlock lockdown. From August, employers will no longer be able to seek reimbursement of the employer's national insurance contributions and the minimum auto-enrolment pension contributions from furloughed employees. From September, employers will now have to start contributing 10% of the 80% salary cover from the government, with the government paying the balancing 70%. And then in October, currently the last month of the furlough scheme's life, this will increase from an employer's contribution of 10% to 20% of the 80% cover, with the government picking up the balancing 60%. And at the moment, the scheme will then close for good on the 31st of October 2020 when no reimbursement of employee salaries will be available from the government thereafter so once you have employees coming back into the workplace either flexibly on furlough through the end of through to the end of October or generally you now need to consider as an employer your obligations to maintain a safe and healthy working environment so I want to touch briefly on what health and safety means in this context So every employer has a non-delegable duty at law to maintain a health and safe working environment. Importantly, employees also have duties to contribute towards and maintain such a health and safe working environment. But the primary obligation rests squarely on the shoulders of the employer. What that means, in the context of making your workplace COVID secure, which is another buzzword, buzz phrase we've been hearing about lately, is no doubt challenging in practice and has in a range of complicating factors, not only in respect of people's physical presence in the workplace, but the equipment they use, how they interact socially and communally in the workplace, and even how they commute to and from work. Now, helpfully for employers of all sizes, the government has set out some comprehensive guidance, including five practical steps for businesses preparing for staff to return to work, including work from home where possible, carrying out COVID-19 risk assessments in consultation with workers or trade unions, redesigning workplaces to maintain social distancing and enhance cleaning processes across the business. The government has also produced eight guides to cover a range of different types of works in different types of sectors. These can all be accessed online. But I think it can essentially be summed up nicely by focusing on the following key. Consult with your employees. Be very clear with them about assessing the risk on what you are going to do. Set up the systems and then make them safe, which is effectively about three things. Hygiene control, in terms of surfaces and everything within the workplace. Respiratory control, in terms of social distancing and the, and the which your air conditioning and so forth works. And of course, people control, being on the lookout for people who are showing symptoms the need to remote work and shield if necessary, and managing those employment issues that come with that. Then implement that system, instruct your employees, be clear, set up notices, put up notices about what needs to happen, and your procedures, give guidance, and importantly, discipline people if they don't follow the requirements. You know, employers need to take their time, plan, consult, don't rush, initially test your return to work, and health and safety mechanisms with a few members of staff or a control set of employees to understand pinch points before everyone is welcomed back on mass, and therefore you have a good understanding of how it's going to work in practice. You need to be very mindful as employers of how you deal with workers in this context. There will be real fear from employees of exposing themselves or others to harm, particularly if they or members of their family or circle fall within the clinically vulnerable or extremely clinical, vulnerable categories. And there will be significant legal issues there to navigate if you get the management of those individuals wrong. But it's fair to say it certainly would be a one-size-fits-all approach, and it will be very fact and circumstance-specific. So that's, in a nutshell, some of the key health and safety issues and practical measures, which will be key in unlocking lockdown and an exit strategy, bringing people back to work. But then we face life post, at the end of October where there is no CJRS there is no more government support for employee salaries and what happens in very challenging business circumstances through at least Q3 and Q4 and into next year now as Victoria said this is where directors and boards really need to think about taking a medium and potentially longer-term view on how to manage their employee population and the workforce there is inevitably the risk of rushing to consider that cuts need to be made to staff swiftly and deeply, immediately, in the event of cash flow or pipeline issues, in respect of employee costs, which of course is one of our biggest fixed costs as a business. But I would just push employers of all sizes not to rush to that option as the only option, because quite often, It may do more harm than good in the immediate and longer term and in in terms of job losses and the loss of talent in the business. There may be other avenues that you can use. For example, changing terms and conditions of employment, temporarily at least, to reduce cost base for a period of time. That could be employees working less days a week, moving to part time, taking temporary reductions in salary, agreeing to defer annual bonuses, at least for this year, to allow the business and the balance and the cash book to to rebalance alternative duties sabbaticals the efficient use of annual leave to ensure that it isn't accrued unnecessarily and so forth are all measures and tools which businesses and employers can use in the short to medium term to try and manage the employee cost base without necessarily having to rush straight away to job cuts and redundancies now. Many of these actions most of them in fact will require employee consent therefore Transparency and consultation and data to your employees about what's going on will be really important So in conclusion, I appreciate The absolute and immediate economic realities and imperatives for all businesses and employers facing this unprecedented market uncertainty and depressed business conditions as a result of the pandemic but similar to the theme the Victoria discussed is do try and take a longer term view because how employees react to this in terms of the treatment of employees may well have lasting consequences both from an employee relations perspective as well as reputationally you really need to bring the workforce with you in in, the, in turbulent times and from my experience good and effective leadership in this context from an employee relations perspective is openness transparency data as to the impact on the business what needs to happen and consulting with your employees then to try and steer the ship through what is uh, some troubling times time with minimum long-term damage as possible sustained. But also there's a real opportunity here to build on the positive aspects that we've been through over the course of the last three or four months. Adaptive and flexible working, IT solutions for remote working, um, looking at your real estate footprint and your fixed cost basis whether or not you really need all of that office space that currently house your cellular offices, an opportunity here to really make flexibility, resilience, and adaptability of the workforce part of the organization's DNA, which will stand you in good stead, certainly as we move through what will generally be probably a rough patch over the course of the next six to 12 months at least, but then for the balance of the year and moving forward more generally to help your business really embed the concept of resilience. And that's about all I wanted to say.
1: Thank you, Victoria and David, for those extremely informative insights. It is very encouraging to hear that many companies have demonstrated ethical behavior throughout the crisis in relation to their treatment of their employees and their shareholders. On that note, a few questions have been submitted. The first one is for you, Victoria. Isn't this wishful thinking? Won't we just return to our old ways with even greater focus on profits, given we're going into a recession? Um, Well,
2: I mean, it's a good question. it certainly requires a significant shift in thought um, from before, where profits were the sole focus. Uh, one comparison has been drawn in relation to the Olympics um, and the 2012 Olympics in London, where there was this hugely successful campaign by the athletes, and it led to an enormous sense of community spirit, doing something for your country, um, huge pride. And I think a lot of people out of that felt that there was going to be this groundswell towards um, everyone committing to getting fit and grassroots sports. Um, And eight years later, we can conclude that that did not happen. Um, There wasn't a significant medium or long-term impact on people's behavior following the Olympics but psychologists have tried to to differentiate the Olympics and the kind of the sense that we were all going to do something good out of it um in that people tend to change their behavior more if something bad has happened than if something good has happened so your revolutions are um more likely to be successful when something bad has happened um and I think we can all agree that the pandemic is a bad thing so it's it's very perhaps it is wishful thinking but that doesn't mean that it may not become a reality um, people have had a long time in lockdown to think about what's important and to see the the real social inequality and the problems we have in our society um, and perhaps that will lead to real change um, and the way that people decide to lead their lives and therefore the decisions um, that will impact the decisions that people make at board level
1: thank you victoria And now a question for David. The return to work physically is obviously going to be challenging in practice, but can an employer discipline an employee who simply refuses to return to work, even if the employer thinks it has done all it can to make the workplace COVID secure?
3: Uh, A good question. Um, And I think one which employers are nervous about. Um, The short answer is, as most women would say, it very much depends on the particular circumstances of the individual. We need to be really cognizant here and understand the context in which that employee is fearful of the return to work. If they themselves are suffering from an underlying health condition, which would put them in the vulnerable or, extreme, or certainly extremely vulnerable category, that is something which employees should do their utmost to facilitate their continuing to work from home, consistent with the government guidance. And not insist on individuals certainly in the clinically vulnerable, extremely vulnerable category coming into work. Those individuals will have underlying health conditions which will most likely be covered by the discrimination legislation under the Equality Act, and therefore reasonable adjustments must be made in respect of those individuals in a work context. Um, so it's, all, even if it's not in respect of those individuals themselves, but they are living with in their household, someone who is. Vulnerable a vulnerable person and and, uh, in real danger if they contract COVID-19 In which case again, the ambit of the law does protect those associated with such vulnerable people So employees really need to take it on a case-by-case basis and understand the circumstances of the individual involved now on the more bullish side if an individual is not in any of those categories is not living with or responsible for anyone within those categories is themselves not suffering from any COVID sy- symptoms and they should, therefore do not need to be self-isolating. And the, and the employer has carried out risk assessments, uh, adapted their workplace, consistent with those risk assessments, advised their employees, consulted with them about what they've done and why they've done it. And an individual still refuses to return to work in circumstances where the employer genuinely needs them to come in for at least some of the time, then there is circumstances in that, in that context in which disciplinary action could potentially be considered against an individual who simply just does not want to return to work.
1: Thank you very much, David. This is an interesting question. It is around director's duties and governance. Clearly, this only applies to companies that are surviving. What about directors of companies that might become insolvent?
2: absolutely I think I think that's a a key point to hit on Um, when there is a potential insolvency so where a company is at risk of insolvency directors duties change and they change significantly so that your focus is very much based around your duty to the creditors Um, and directors need to continually assess their decision to continue trading in light of developing circumstances. You have to avoid incurring further credit. You have to, um, sorry, you shouldn't accept further credit and you mustn't incur further liabilities. Um, there's a high percentage of companies who right now are thinking about nothing other than survival. They don't have the luxury of being able to Um, the the luxury or the cash flow to gift, for example, free coffee or make discounts. You know, they they can't repurpose their business because they couldn't afford the investment that would be needed in the raw materials to make PPE, examples like that. And certainly, you know, many directors are just grappling with the the problems of how, how their business is going to survive. So, yes, directors on the brink of insolvency need to focus on, On how they can survive and reduce debt, Um, and realistically, that will shift their entire focus onto trying to make a profit in a bid to survive. So, absolutely, the question is, the question is absolutely right. It touches on a key point, which is um, a director of a company that's about to that could potentially be insolvent has to focus on their creditors and how to get themselves out of the issue financially.
1: Thank you, Gloria. I think we have time for one last question. This one is for David. The furlough scheme has obviously been a big help for employers to save jobs, at least for now. Given the purpose of furlough is to try and avoid immediate job losses, is there a legal obligation on employers to furlough people instead of making them redundant?
3: That's uh, a good question. And one, as I mentioned at the outset, I think over the course of the next year or so, we're going to see some interesting um, issues uh, from a legal perspective, and this is one of them, in the context of unfair dismissal, there is a mechanism here, at least until the end of October, which allows and has been specifically introduced by the government to avoid redundancies. However, there is no legal obligation on employers to use that mechanism. It is effectively a reimbursement mechanism, which is the cho- choice of the employer to use or otherwise. There is no nothing preventing an employer making redundancies while the furlough scheme is in place now the reputational aspects of doing so uh, both widely in the market as well as from your employee population could be quite severe if you if employers don't at least utilize the cjrs for life before rushing to make job cuts in the circumstances um, i think will be quite severe Um, however um, once that government retention uh, government job retention scheme ends in October there's bound to be issues of rationalization and and job cutting across the board hopefully in a sensibly last-resort type way considered by employers and one of the big aspects will be for those who were dismissed while the CJRS was in place that if they bring a claim to challenge that dismissal whether or not as a matter of general fairness which lies at the heart of unfair dismissal law, a court would consider that an employer not utilising the CJRS TJRS when it could have, fundamentally undermines what would otherwise be a fair redundancy-based decision. That is what is all to play for in the employment tribunal and courts over the course of the next year or so, uh, for people that find themselves in that in that circumstance.
1: Thank you, David. We are now approaching the end of the webinar. On behalf of Charles Stanley, I would like to thank Victoria and David for their excellent presentations, but most of all, I would like to sincerely thank you, our guests, for joining us today. I do hope you found it interesting and beneficial. Goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening to Charles Stanley Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it offered a small escape from life under lockdown. Please subscribe to be kept up to date with our latest releases. If you have any questions or comments about the content covered in today's episode, or any questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, then please do email these to events at charles-stanley.co.uk. Once again, thank you for listening, and as always, stay safe. The value of investments can fall as well as rise. Investors may get back less than invested. Past performance is not a reliable guide to the future.